Welcome to episode 17 of Lost in Translation with Bobby Martin. I am Sam Perkins. We're back after a a six and a half month hiatus or so. Um, a lot going on as far as the studio being totally renovated, all new equipment being put in, all kinds of disasters with supply chain issues and suppliers that didn't follow through on their promises, but we are we are good to go. Bobby, uh, welcome back to the studio. Uh, it's good to have you in here, and it's good to have today our guest for episode 17. I don't know what the official title should be, basketball guru, uh, basketball whisperer, developer of the great white hope and other dinosaurs of the basketball age, uh, <laughs> Wayne Alpert. Wayne and Bobby, thank you for being here today. Nice to be here. Sam, it is awesome to be back. Um, as you say, life goes on, plenty of changes, plenty of challenges, but uh, you know, here we are again, and I'm excited to get started. This is awesome. Lots Wayne, been, welcome. Lots been going on uh, in life, my life. Some things going on, Bobby. What's what's new in your end? Well, you know, every day's new. <laughs> you think you're prepared, and all of a sudden, somebody you know, changes the questions. So <laughs> you uh, you react, and uh, you, you try to make it the best you can. I've got two beautiful daughters, um, one son who I'm extremely proud of, and you know, as long as family is is healthy and, and able to fight one more day, what else is there? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, for me, you know, maybe we'll do an episode on it. My wife's currently um, uh, battling breast cancer. She's finished up 12 weeks of chemotherapy. She has big surgery coming up. Um, so that's certainly been a, um ordeal, new experience, you know, a roller coaster. Uh, try to really live in the good moments and, and enjoy time with our kids and, and um and I'm glad to be back here. It's it's nice, uh, nice change. Uh, so we have uh, with us Wayne today, um, Bobby. I know that I can't do justice for who Wayne is and who Wayne is to you. So maybe I'll turn it over to you for more of a formal introduction. What would you say about about Wayne? So I'm going to start by saying that um, we have all type of basketball coaches in the world. We've got all type of different. You know, coaches can. They can separate themselves into different categories. Um, I would describe uh, Wayne Alpert as coach, mentor, father figure, brother. Um, what makes Wayne different for me and my personal experience with him was his ability to not simply communicate but to connect, you know, connect the dots between um, what's possible and where you currently are. Um, it's, I think for athletes, it's an extremely difficult process to try to connect those dots because we, we live in worlds that most people don't get to experience. Um, Wayne has been, for me, the most influential part of my professional life and my personal life. For that, I am forever grateful. So I would in two words, describe him as coach, mentor. Wayne, you know, you're, you have a very long history with the game of basketball and with training athletes. Um, 
and you predate now, you know, there are <laughs> there there are trainers, you know, trainers, and some of them are, are legit trainers, but that are, you know, uh, it's just as much, I think, marketing and image and, you know, these guys that are working with NBA players that they're all over, you know, Instagram and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and, and you go way, way back before social media, before all this stuff to really before basketball specific trainers almost existed. You were one of the real originals. And is, is that a nice way of saying I'm prehistoric? <laughs> um, you predate uh, the the hype around um, basketball training. You you predate uh, really the, the the all of the the show of it and 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 going back to when it didn't really exist. So I know it's a long and winding road, but how did you get into sports specific training, basketball training? You know, I don't know if you had a background as as a player. You know, you're certainly. I mean, let's be real. You are a short, white Jewish man like myself, um, and it doesn't scream like someone that basketball players are going to flock to, especially in the age where the sport has become uh, – it's always kind of been dominated by by tall guys, at least in the modern era, but now tall African-American or even today European. Um, you know, how, how does that how does that come to be? How do you become a basketball-specific trainer? I think most people that aspire to be better at a job, an event, a, a hobby, an interest are going to uh, observe that interest as it is in life, wherever it is. It could be as a beginning process. It could be as a completed process. It could be any, anything in between. But first, you have to start becoming observant. and. I think I said this before when we did an interview that I believe that one of the greatest blessings that I had as a coach is, is I didn't have anybody to teach me wrong. And that happens frequently. I have a great example of that, but I'll use that later. Um, we all hope that the things that we're trying to do on a basketball court are going to be effective. We think we, this will help us shoot better. This will help us be more deceptive. This will help us hold our position better. So we try to do those things, and usually we come up to what you would define as, you know, my level. This is about where I am, relatively speaking, to people that I'm competing against. As a result, most of the time that's underwhelming because what moves people in my life's experience is, is being able to see where you are and hope or aspire to become something much better than that and then set out in the process. So uh, Red Auerbach went every summer to uh, Washington, D.C. to go to the playgrounds to see who was doing what moves, what ideas, and he described it as an invaluable part of his coaching ability because what, it ha what happened was is he was on the cutting edge of new movement. People would be trying, for example, Earl Monroe was one of the first guys to popularize the spin move in professional basketball. That was probably late 60s, early 1970s. But <clears throat> as people begin to, to, to play more and more frequently, they try and they do more things that are different. So observation is critical, and then it helps to have a purpose. And my purpose, if you see the name on my hat, is athletus. I work with my brother 
and in conjunction with my brother and Athletus and in my own training. And everybody that we work with has to become better by choice if they choose to become better as opposed to me saying, you will work harder, you will fight for this. They make the choice to try out for the team. They make the choice that this is an important sport event to express themselves in. So you have people that are dying to get better, and then you got to answer the $64,000 question, how? The why is apparent. The how is, is we bring X talent, X size, X ability, and we've got to find a way to maximize it. So getting much stronger, becoming more flexible, obviously being much more committed is a critical set of uh, elements and aspects. But as a coach, you learn things that you think are going to be helpful and you start inputting them. And you get the feedback and you build. The process isn't esoteric as much as the information and how it fits together is. So you can find a very small group of things that are very important to X player, and that player may become a professional, may make a living, may go to college for nothing, um, may be a much better human being than they would have been uh, had they not made high school varsity or been more re regarded or respected in their playtime with their friends and peers. So building is a matter of choice of the builder. You want to find out what you're capable of and then you have to make adjustments because nothing is going to stay the same. The challenges will change, the people will change, and how well they do is a reflection on their desire and your ability. So I understand you said, and it makes total sense to me when you said, you know, one thing, and I'm paraphrasing, is that you didn't have anyone to teach you wrong because you were kind of one of the first to do it. And and I I, I get that completely. I remember for a long time I was working with catchers uh, in my own uh, after I was done playing when I was, you know, doing a little high school coaching, AAU coaching before I got totally turned off by the AAU scene and didn't really have time in my life to be coaching high school anymore. And catching was like one of the lost arts. It really is, you know. Um, I tell kids that are athletes still if, if they're playing baseball, and it's harder for me to be into baseball. It's just the sport doesn't really have the juice for me that it used to. It's, it's gotten pretty it's boring. A, it's and, a player's and, game. Yeah, and I think it's really uh, – it's on the precipice of, I think, really falling off hard if you look at you know kids that are not playing the sport anymore. And, and, and you know at the major league professional level, they still think everything's fine because the ad revenue is coming in. But – you talk to high school kids, and the, even the ones playing don't watch it anymore. So at some point, that's going to catch up with it. But that's I'm getting into the weeds here. The big thing with catchers is is like athletic kids are not catching anymore. And I always would tell kids, if you're an athlete, the best way for and you're a baseball player, the best way for you to get a college scholarship, start catching because it is the most important position on the field. It is the position that the least amount of kids are going out to play. Athleticism goes a very long way behind the plate. People don't think about it. And the one thing that I think would work to kids' advantages, like myself, I didn't start catching until I got to college and got converted to a catcher. Mm -hmm. I was always a skill position, up the middle, shortstop, center field, um, is kids don't have bad habits. But you still have to learn the good ones. And for you, when there was no one really doing it before you, so I understand that not being taught bad habits about being kind of a trainer and coach and all that, but how do you learn the good ones when there isn't a, a roadmap? 
ahead of you? How do you, how do you get into it? How do you learn the good the, habits? The uh, roadmap for me was looking at some of the great players in history um, and observing what made them great. And for example, uh, Josic just won the NBA championship. And I was observing a movement that he had where he gets an entry pass and every time he threw a fake, it was at the exact time that the enemy was thinking about the fake prior to that. So we put together a series of what would be seven fakes, each one of them a step, step and a half ahead of the defender's reaction, because he was reacting to a fake that was before that. So where it becomes challenging, even for me, is the subtlety involved in the movements because at the end of the day, they're not doing it in an empty gym. They're doing it against a competitive, um, high-strung defender, especially if you're good, who's trying to make a name that he can stop you and probably is telling you he's going to. And it's up to you to keep your cool, make your choices, and grind him out as the game goes. And to digress slightly, because you started the conversation with Bobby, that's exactly how Bobby played, at the beginning of the game and at the end of the game. Every play, every possession became another thing where it was, I'm going to make your job difficult each and every time. I'm going to move, I'm going to fight, I'm going to be balanced, I'm going to hustle, I'm going to anticipate. There's all sorts of ways in which you can defeat somebody, but you have to master your ability when you're between the lines. So I'm a big supporter of the coaches, the caddies of the world. I think they're very underrated. They're considered uh, extras. Uh, I consider them critical. And I've seen um, in New York as we speak, uh, one of the ba baseball players that's been a machine, that is his nickname. The guy, his last name is LeMahieu. He's a machine. He's been in the worst slump of his career. That team is going to have to analyze their way out of what made him a nickname, so a fantastic nickname of the machine. And he's in a terrible slump, and the team in the city is putting extra pressure on him. Not like he isn't doing yeah. it for himself in the first place. He's sick, obviously sick and embarrassed that he hasn't performed as well. So, you know, once somebody starts feeling hope, once somebody starts seeing progress, now you, as a coach, get a different read. This is sort of, now you're dealing with Bobby 2.0, Bobby 3.0. And if somebody has got it in them, they're going to fight all over again from their new plateau. But you've got them to the next level. They're not, they're thrilled with that they did it. But on the other hand, they know this is now the new baseline. And Bobby did this a half a dozen different times in his career. Bobby, how, tell me about Wayne as a coach, and, and how did you wind up, you know, working with him? Because you guys have an extensive history at this point. Um, you know, you he was uh, the trainer that I think you credited with really kind of reviving your career after college. You know, you went into college with, um, you know, as a high school All-American, biggest recruits in Pitt history, you had you know, really good career. We've talked about not quite making the NBA and the, the effects that that had on you and kind of putting it back together. And And I know Wayne was really instrumental in your second life of becoming, you know, one of the all-time great American players over in Europe and in the highest levels of European ball. Um, but how did you wind up 
originally with him and 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 how where does that connection start and what would you say about him as a as a trainer what it's like you know working under him so i'll start by saying this it's all about growth um i, I believe it was william butler yates who uh was, who said that happiness is neither virtue nor pleasure nor this thing nor that but simply growth we're happy when we're growing wayne helped me who i affectionately call midas affectionately because um, he had the golden touch you know he was able to touch a part of me that um that i didn't know existed i felt it but i couldn't do it um there's this, you know there's another saying you know when when the teachers when when the students ready the teacher will appear i found out that i had to become my own teacher i had to actually let myself go in order to learn you know there were parts of me that i had to uh I would say subdue my passions, okay, <laughs> in in order to grow. Um, that's what Wayne was able to do for me. Um, I think there there are many players who are talented. Um, you've got talent all over the place, but talent's not enough. Um, you need certain habits to protect your talent. Um, you need a certain degree of, I would say. Uh, uh, Let's call it attitude, all right? What are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing not to do? Because once you say yes to one thing, you're, you're probably saying no to a lot of other things. Um, for me, he was instrumental in tapping into that part of me. Um, for that, I'm forever grateful. Um, I still you know, find myself trying to uh, you know, re remember the lessons. I mean, he's, he's he's at my beck and call all the time, you know, whenever I need him. But, you know, for me as a player, it was about growing, continuing to grow as a person. Um, that was my key. I can't say what the key would be for, for any other player. I'm saying that was my key. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to have people like that in my life uh, throughout my lifetime so far. And uh, Wayne has been there for, you know, much of my adult life. Uh, from 24 years old, I believe, until now. Um, so this is over two decades later. <laughs> you <know>? Conservatively. <laughs> conservatively. Conservatively. Um, I saw other players getting what I wanted. I saw them growing. Um, players who I didn't have that much, that many problems with in college. You know, we were all... In, in the same area, you know, same part of our careers and didn't have that many problems with them. But when I saw them getting better, uh, drastically better, I said, ooh, <laughs> who did that? How did he, how did he get so good so soon? Um, and it intrigued me. Um, I still couldn't get out of my way. I, I, when I found out who it was, you know, and this is, I believe, one of the things that Wayne had to fight against as a young, younger Jewish white coach in a sport that's predominantly, you know, African American. Um, I'll let him speak on those challenges, but uh, you know, even I was a victim of what I didn't know. So I finally decided to say yes um, to reason, <laughs> okay, and the rest was history. Do you think if you had had said yes earlier in your career that things would have gone differently for you? <laughs> um, 
so I'm, I'm going to tell you how I handle this. Um, I can I try not to sit back and, and think about what could have happened. Um, I think that's one of the problems in in many communities. You sit back and wonder if, if, if. Of course, things would have been different if, if, if it's in butts were candies and nuts, what a, you know, what a party we would have. Um, I'm grateful for today. Now, I've got to work with what I have now. Um, I will not look back in the past. I think of one of the things that um, Wayne helped me do over the years is to let go of the guilt. You know, there is a certain guilt in not make, you know, there was a certain guilt in not making the NBA and not being able to say, oh, you know, I mean, everybody's has dreams and wishes, but, uh, you know, you, you do what you do, what you can with what you have. Um, I was young enough and, and dumb enough and talented enough to not see what I needed. <laughs> you know, It's what you don't see that kills you. Uh, so yeah, things would have been different, but does that make me the pain that I've gone through um, helps make me who I am today, you know, in, in a positive way. So I don't know. Wayne, you're not just, you haven't just been a basketball trainer. You've worked with all different players of all different abilities and positions, but you really kind of carved out a niche as like a big man coach and a reviver of careers that were on the peripheries of the game, so to speak. Like if you look at some of the players that you've worked with, and there's been a host of them, but you know, uh, like Mark Eaton, who is a long and winding road, even though he was seven foot four and an all-time great shot blocker, didn't even really, you know, play basketball until late. You know, he was a mechanic for a while, goes to college, but doesn't really play in college. Um, you know, Ben Hanlogton, who I believe is still like the oldest American-born NBA rookie. Uh, to to break through as, as finally you know get to the NBA he was I think the oldest American born player to do that, um, you know there's been a lot of them, Ant- Antonio Davis, Theo Ratliff, you know a, a long long list, but a lot of bigs. How did you come to specialize specifically in bigs and in these kind of revival projects, and and what would you look for in a player? Because I understand sort of the almost the money ball approach for for someone like you where you're trying to carve out a niche there aren't a lot of basketball trainers you know you're not a guy that can just be like oh yeah i played at kansas or ucla or something so you got to see the the potential but the guy that really needs the help so he's going to listen more um so what did you look for in players and and why was it bigs how did you come to specialize in bigs well i thought i could beat up the bigs physically (laughs) so then it was very easy to match them on a court after i kicked him in the head or something. Um, essentially, what I, what I wanted to know is, is that the, it was important to improve for anybody I work with. Because if it's not important to them, it's certainly not going to work. It's not going to be important to me uh, too much longer at that point. Bobby and the people that did the best with me came to a conclusion that they've taken it reasonably far as they can up to that point. And give or take, the give or take wasn't going to be because the people in the profession, they cool off to you. They're very, very nice to you on the way up when they think you're going to be a first rounder. And uh, they'll shake your hand, they'll give you a big pat in the back. But at the end of the day, you're the one that gets released and you're the one that's looking for work. And that's not a reasonable position. Essentially, I thought that the big men were 
I love big men. I think the I think they need to have changed the rules to allow the big men the, the, the glory of being able to play and compete more one on one. And I got a chance to see uh, Kareem Jabbar when he was Lou Alcindor and Bill Russell playing a young Will Chamberlain. That will date me pretty good, but it's true. So the big men had a little bit more trouble. They got thrown into the into the post when they were playing because they were the biggest guy. You rebound, you block shots, uh, you get a post move once in a while, you set a pick once in a while, and we're good. And that worked for everybody that was small. It did not work for the bigs. The bigs were lacking a lot of experience that they were able to get. They were behind in movements, coordination, balance, uh, they, they had trouble anticipating because the game is kind of blind to a big man. You have your back to a lot of the play. So you have to anticipate. You've got to use your mind a little bit more than, than they're asked to most of the time as their young's growing into those type of players. So they may say, I'm open, I'm wide open, give me the ball. And then they get the ball, and by the time they get the ball, the floor has changed. Their idea is antiquated a second and a half later than they thought it was, and that changes everything. So you need somebody that's open to learning in anything that's teaching, uh, that, that, that's about becoming better. Once they're opening to learning, it's their heart that you're going to find. And Bobby had a big heart. Antonio Davis said, all my friends were in the NBA. All right, things like that happen. But the best of the stories, in my opinion, are people that deeply appreciated being able to get over the hump, put enough money away to build a life uh, or begin a life anew afterwards. Because that's the sad part about what I do is, is that many of them have trouble overcoming the transition from professional athlete or even young athlete that gets a lot of positive attention, whether it be to even reach high school varsity. You could be a big, big man on campus. Everybody can know who you are. But as it goes through, once you start improving, you're not looking at the same guy anymore. It's up to the guy to show you, all right, I, I'm now doing this. The next question is, what's next? And when it comes from the player, when they're hungry, when they're excited, when they can't wait for Monday to come around, so they're back in the gym because we worked out five and a half days a week. They got a day and a half to recover. When they walked in Monday, they were hungry. And Bobby became uh, very helpful in leading the guys that came after him so that they had a much better and clearer chance to understand the opportunity that was in front of them and to do a better job at taking advantage of it and, and building something positive from it. Do you have any favorite uh, players that you've worked with aside from Bobby who's you know in here? I know that that almost goes beyond player-coach relationship to mentor-student father figure and that sort of thing. But do you have other, you know, success stories or, or, or player stories that are favorites as you look back well, on I your career? A, I have one that Bobby was directly involved in <clears throat> and I was almost uh, not around too much longer after that. Uh, early versions of Ben Hanlockton was very playful. 
He's almost like an oversized puppy dog. Uh, he'd show up. He'd take the lunch pail out. He'd do his work, and he was happy. But I wasn't getting his A game. I wasn't getting his A intensity. I was getting, he said, more than anybody ever got out of him. I said, one day, you're going you're gonna to wake up, and you're going to say, good isn't good enough. And once he said that, which was about four and a half years into his career off of a traumatic event, the traumatic event was almost harming me by accident in a, in a playful thing. He was in a car and started playing with the car a little bit. It got out of hand. From that moment forward, when I, instead of killing him for what he did, I told him, that's what happens when you don't grow up. And he was successful before that, but I would define his success as pretty good. He became special after that. He won, he won a, a Turkish championship with his, uh, another client that we had had, Quadri Lawless. And the effects of both of them, Quadri was about a third skinnier than he was in college. And that was wonderful. And him and Ben played for a number of years together and made a great name for each other. But the Ben, the man that became out of that was exciting because for the first time in his life, he threw caution to the wind and a lot of money up into a, into a hurricane to try out for the NBA. And that moved me. All right, Bobby did that himself. And Bobby, if Bobby's born 10 years earlier, he has a 10-year career. Even with, that, with me getting to beginning his beginning working with me at the exact same time. Ten years earlier, the game was a little bit different. The game softened in the 90s, and that worked against Bobby. Prior to that, when they let people play, and if you went for a layup and you didn't get knocked down, <laughs> your teammates were looking at you like you neglected to defend us. <laughs> it was a, a very tribal group. But they... I, at some point, the NBA decided that they did not want that kind of physical basketball. And it's a shame because each basket was meaningful. And if you talked to somebody, you knew. <laughs> you knew somebody was going to give it to you back, no matter whether you were seven feet and you were talking to a six-footer. Somebody's going to find you and let you know how they felt about it. So what Ben did by finding himself was, was stunning because kids like him, if you saw him as a young tyke at two, four, six, eight, ten, you'd see the same goofball. And instead, not only did he become a fantastic player, but just became a pillar of the community. I uh, brought up a wonderful family, a sensational family. They, they're missionaries. They do wonderful things for each other. And his son had a fantastic first year at Marshall, and he transferred, I believe, to, um, I think it's Florida. So as a second year, which is a tremendous step up from nobody wanted him above the Marshall level going into his first year. So that, I would say, is, is a result of what Ben achieved and the way Ben handled himself, because had he not, we don't even know if uh, that young man would have been born. So for those who aren't familiar, what could you say about, about Ben? You know, where did you find him and where was his career at when you kind of first linked uh, up with him? Um, 
Ben's situation was a little bit different than most of them. It was a shade atypical. Uh, I got Ben directly out of college. He didn't need to see the real world for a few years. And um, just again, came in. I asked him about how his college experience was. He said, I hated my coach. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. I said, well, there's not that much to like. I mean, your, your game, as I look at it, you need to be better at this, 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 this is a big laundry list. And we said, well, all right, let's get, let's get going here. So that was his A game at that point in his life. But what made him special was his reaction to the stupid event that almost changed his and my life permanently. And by getting beyond that moment and deciding Good isn't good enough, and I'm no longer playing the goofball. I'm going to play the quintessential man that I'm capable of becoming. And it was very touching to see because I took a big chance grabbing that moment where he made a terrible mistake and saying, are, you grown, are we going to be growing up now? Is now the time good isn't good enough? And at that point, they basically took over. They started yeah. owning games. And um, it, it was assertive. He was hungry. Everything changed. His respect level for, for this, when it could have been taken from him by his own hand. At that point, being given a reprieve changed him completely. I almost don't recognize the distinction between the two because Ben was always fun. He still is. But that was, he didn't take anything serious enough to be an NBA candidate at that point. I, I, from what I remember, Ben, I think he played something like seven years before making the NBA. A professional, mm -hmm. you know, came out in like 96 and it wasn't until like 2003 that he made the NBA. True. That, most players, my understanding is, is once they kind of, there's that fine line, and, and it seems like Ben wasn't even on that fine line. That when he came out of college, the he wasn't even on, he wasn't one of those borderline guys. No, he wasn't on the NBA radar. You know, he was six eleven. You know, during an era of six elevens uh, and seven foots, and even you know bigger mm -hmm. than that. Um, that there wasn't anything really distinguishing him at the next level on paper at that point. Um, and my understanding is even with the guys, with the borderline guys, that sort of once they make that decision of I'm going overseas, I'm going after the money uh, that is over there because kicking around in the minor leagues in the, in, in the United States, the, the money isn't there for the most part, um, that they kind of a year or two in for the most part, they're off NBA teams radars. You know, there's thousand guys coming out every year, you know, from college. There's the new wave, the new wave, the new wave. There's only what, like 400 roster spots in the NBA or something like that? That's and right. and mm -hmm. the number of roster spots that are up for grabs that aren't occupied by established vets is, is much smaller than that. So how does someone, you know, even when he makes that decision of, all right, like my eyes have been opened, I've been in this, you know, whatever this, this traumatic event, nearly catastrophic event that has changed my mindset, for a lot of guys, even when you change your mindset, if it's your seven years removed from college hoops, you can't even get anyone to look at you. It, it's pretty late, and it's beyond late in the game. How does that happen? How does a guy at that point get on an NBA roster? 
Well, um, in this case, a lot of the players that pick up and go overseas um, during the middle of the summer or towards August will pick up and leave before veteran camp because the European seasons begin earlier. And what happens with that is is that the players that want to, um, let's call them practice players for the, for the vet camp, when they come into veteran camp, you know whether the team respects you or not by whether they offer you guaranteed money for the year. In other words, we want you for the year, we're paying you for the year, all right, you're beginning now, we'll see how it goes. No, that wasn't it. They didn't offer him 10 cents to come in in any meaningful sense. What happened was is that he went in and he simply was sharp, sharp, sharp whether it be passing, whether it be picking, whether it be anticipating, hustling back up court. This is a guy got in a ball game about two months after he made the NBA and put up a 10-7 and seven in the fourth quarter of a ball game. And I don't even know of a white American that's ever done that. I mean, I was watching it, and I said, this, this doesn't look that crazy for him. He's capable. So... Ben knew that they had to do what we have always talked about in the program. Let them stop me. Let the, not, I don't want to stop myself. Let them prove that they can stop me. And if they can, we'll make adjustments from that point. But Ben made it, hung around. They tried everybody else out. They did not get answers. And then you get thrown in for two minutes, so you got to turn it into four. Four to eight, eight to 16. And if you perform well in those situations, the respect level begins to accumulate. Now, the level of man that Ben became is after he was just starting to, to get traction. Sam, what happened is, is he got an ACL. And that was rare in our experience. A lot of it is the dehydration of playing in heights. A lot of it is uh, the, the uh, you're, you're playing, a lot of times you're sitting. Then you get back and you're playing uh, extra minutes. So he hurts himself at the end. A year and a half later, he's back in the NBA off an ACL in his 30s. And I don't, I don't even know uh, if anybody's ever done that from his position of, of respect level. So that's to show you the kind of guy he became. Is is the same guy that wouldn't take a chance and throw money up in the air for the right to compete and outperform NBA players and get on their radar. At this point, he knew there's no reason to go to Europe. All right, if there's another challenge waiting for me, it's here. Bobby, what do you remember about competing against Ben, and what do you remember about that that working relationship between him and Wayne and this sort of transformation? And it's just as Wayne described. Um, ben was playful. Um, he was ta ta talented. Um, aloof, but uh, a heart of gold, a wonderful family. Well, not a family at that time, but um, I'm, I'm thinking of him now. He's, he's got a wonderful family. Um, and yeah, he was, he, he was looking for answers. I, I think, I mean, again, if, if we're going back to what Wayne represents is, he represents, I would, the players become successful, but Wayne represents significance. You know, there's so much that you need. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say that 
basketball is, is, is complicated, um, I will say that it's complex. There are many complexities that we don't get a chance to, uh, as players, we, we don't get a chance to, while we experience them, we don't have answers for them. And what Wayne provided for every single one of us, in my opinion, is a way to address the complexities, you know, both within the sport and the complexities within ourselves that allowed us to have some type of success, you know, and for us, that was everything. Um, now, on the other side, uh, I see the importance of, you know, the success was more about, um, it was personal success. But, you know, now on the other side, what, what I see is the value of significance, of giving back and helping uh, a younger player, which he allowed me to do by being significant and helping the younger players that were coming in. Now it's just, you know, I, I get to think about it a little bit more. So, um, because it's not tangible, it's not something that you can touch, but it is something that players feel. You know, and that's that's the connection that has to be made. I think it's a wonderful lesson for the younger players who believe that getting in the gym and doing all type of plyometrics and the jump machines and all this other stuff and you know and showing how good they are by beating their chests um, I believe that Wayne represents so much more than that it represents none of that I should say none of that and there there's another level once you reach one level you got to get to another you know so if, if you want to get to the next level if you want to get beyond yourself um, that and 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 be respected by the coaches out there who like Wayne said don't give a damn about you it's all it's all about the business um he allows you to he allowed me to be to be my own business to be my own billboard you know um i specifically remember a time where i had great contract overseas had a great year great year it was my first year overseas and uh team had had never done better you know we were right there on the cusp of making the playoffs we should have made it but that's another story but anyway uh I remember coming in the gym and uh you know Wayne jumped on me Dude, what are you doing it's not the type of type of effort I'm looking for but there's more to be done and I'm sitting there like what what me more to be done I just had a great year <laughs> my, I had doubled my salary blah 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 and uh you know he's like no that was supposed to be done. Hard, hard, hard work is part of the process. It's, it's required. What else you got? And uh, that challenge meant everything. So any young player out there who has a chance to listen to this podcast, um, and, I, and I hope they're listening, um, you couldn't have a better mentor. Any parent that's listening, if you were going to, if you were going to invest in your children, then Wayne Alpert is the type of person that you want to lead the charge. Just get out the way, all right? Because sometimes you got to save, you have to save your child from a parent's love. You know, you have to. So that's what I would say. How, how did the dynamics between you and Wayne change when you made the decision that you were done playing? and you became a trainer yourself, and for a long time you were working directly under Wayne, with Wayne. 
I remember going to, to Waverly Oaks and Waltham a bunch of times, watching you guys there um, over the years. But how did the dynamic change, or how did it stay the same, um, when you went from player to uh, trainer working with and, and, and under Wayne? Well, I think that there there's always a growth process um, going from player to um, to understudy um, was was it wasn't as difficult because Wayne has a, a bad habit of, of making the difficult look easy okay but I, I would say that um, for me it, it wasn't that because he, he held my hand through it um, you know Wayne was putting up the money Wayne was doing everything so you didn't feel the brunt of a real decision maker um, as I got older and I branched out on my own, um, I started to feel the brunt of that a little bit. You know, it was uh, it was shocking. It was it made me more appreciative, um, and it helped me um, it helped me continue to grow. Uh, today, I mean, I've, I've been able to you know, to build. Um, I continue to build, and he and I are looking to rekindle and build again. Um, I think that it it will grow because I've grown. Um, of course, there. Are, I mean, I think you know, in any mentor uh, teacher relationship, you know, the the student always wants to be the teacher, you know, and uh, it's 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 a difficult process, you know, because you're always speaking, and it, it's not it's it's not me proving anything to Wayne. It would be me trying to prove it to myself. And I mean that's that's who we are as men. We want to feel like we we want to know that we're capable. Um, but in order to grow, again, there are parts of you that that you have that have to die. You know, just like a a uh, a flower. You know, you plant the seed, but the the husk of the seed has to die in order for what's inside the seed to grow. Um, what I've been given is an unbelievable opportunity to uh, to to dig deep into the soil establish roots and uh, you know, see what type of garden we can grow. For both you guys, um, you know, because Bobby, you were the understudy, you worked with Wayne for, for a long time, and, and when you made the decision to branch out on your own, yep. did, that, did that make things, was there tension? Did that make things difficult? Did that, you know, um, was there friction? What was that process like? Were the, what was it, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the wording here, but, 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 but was it difficult and did things get distant at all when, yes. you know? Yes, And absolutely. And how did you guys, if it did, how did you guys kind of mend fences from that? Well, I, I can only speak for me. Um, when, as I became distant, the distance was me allowing myself to figure it out. Um, there are always things, I mean, if in any parent-child relationship, in any business relationship, you are going to have things that you disagree with uh, or disagree on. And um, you know, businesses have, or partners have broken up for less, <laughs> you know. But be, uh, behind that, um, and I think this, this is attributes to our connection with each other. And again, I'm, I'm stressing the word connection. Um, he was always there with an open heart, open mind, and that's all you can ask for. 
because you have to allow people the space to grow. Um, I'm sure it wasn't difficult. I'm sure there are things that I, I've said and done, and I mean, I, I felt the same way. Um, but you know, you, you again, you you look in the mirror, you recognize your faults, um, you build on your strengths, and uh, you reestablish relationships um, as a better version of yourself. So yeah, <laughs> it's hard, but. It's worth it. Wayne, how did how did how did you handle it, uh, and how was it for you? Because I know Bobby's like the, I I think I don't I don't want to speak for you, but the player that you have had the longest relationship with, as far mm-hmm. as uh, players that you've trained and coached, and you know he's been there as a player, he's been there as a coach. It's very very long, sort of, um, you know, sensei student relationship, uh, sort of surrogate father figure, and. And son, and 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 how did you? What was the impact on you when Bobby first went off on his own? Well, when we went when we went our separate ways at that point, it was uh, it was probably more political than it was anything else. It was just uh, there were things going on uh, socially and culturally that were so significant that I could no longer uh, just shrug my shoulders and say. I'm apolitical, the world spins around, that's their world, my world spins around here, and so on. And I don't have children, but everybody I've worked with, I feel a connection to. And obviously my connection with Bobby was the deepest. I thought that sooner or later, Bobby would evolve to the point where he would understand, maybe not necessarily agree, but understand where I was coming from and that it was, um, it was to be respected as my right because I wasn't interfering on anybody else's position and I didn't invent the problem, but the problems were coming and we see 15 years later what this co- country has become in that short period of time. And the germination of a lot of the stuff that's going wrong over the last few years has a, a root about 15 years back. And that was in and around the time frame when things began to become, I would say, much more personally challenging. But it wasn't my fault for seeing these things. It was my life to live. It wasn't Bobby's fault for his perspectives. All right, I knew that I had helped Bobby to create himself as an exceptional man. You can hear it in the way that he describes life and the way he describes challenge. But um, at this stage in Bobby's life, he's now become a mentor to so many people. Uh, The mothers and the fathers, especially the mothers, I think, that don't have a father figure at home are desperate. And they're not desperate for somebody to step into those shoes and in that role, but they do want their son or daughter, but especially their son, to, to know that their perspective may not be as well-rounded, experienced, and sharp as they think. And Mr. Martin will be able to help you understand life yourself and the game. And that's not ordinary, that's extraordinary. And that's why I've loved him, and that's why I believe that eventually we would reconnect uh, at that level and even deeper. Um. 
Speaking of, of kind of change and, 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 and things changing, and this isn't on the same level as, you know, things going on in the country, the world, all that sort of stuff, but, um, you know, the, the game of basketball during your time as a, as a coach and as a trainer has gone through many evolutions. You <laughs> talked about, you know, the 80s and you watch old footage back then and it's like, oh, my God, you know, like literally fist fight, like the, the, the classic clip of like Robert Parrish, like punching Bill Lambeer multiple times and not getting ejected from the game is amazing. Like you watch that now and you're like, he wasn't. I don't even think he was assessed a flagrant for that. Like he literally punched Lambeer like three yeah. times. T- today, the, and, today the lawyers will yeah, be in the, yeah. in the stands. Like, like, so, so, the, so, so there's that, and but then also you. So the physicality has changed in a big way. It went from essentially like a contact sport in the way that um, some elements of football, some elements of lacrosse, some elements of hockey. Really, like in the '80s, I think there were much more similarities between hockey and basketball as far as you know, hitting and checking and fights and all that sort of stuff um, to a game that's not. And also, you know, the position that you've really specialized in, the bigs, the fours and the, the traditional fours and fives, you know, is everybody's shooting threes now. You know, there's a reliance on analytics and, and, and you know, a de-emphasis on post play, on rebound, especially offensive rebounding, which is one of my favorite things because that's – maybe the biggest effort stat there is. You don't have inside positioning most times. Exactly. And you're just going after the ball and outworking someone. What do you feel about the evolution or the changes of the game? I think evolution always implies getting better get, and, you know, evolving. And I don't, I don't know if everything around basketball is an evolution the way the game has changed. Maybe it is. I'm not the expert. But what do you think about the changes well, in the, the game? Ev- it's just a process of evolution is you could have people that have spoken uh, what they saw in life 5,000 years ago and those ideas can still be spoken of today. So I don't think it's a, we like to think life was created when we were born. Yeah. (laughs) And it is quite simply not the case. The game went from a, you called it contact, uh, since I was dealing with mostly fours and fives, I would define it more on the collision as opposed to contact, because when the bulls were hitting each other, that wasn't contact. They weren't moving against each other. They were trying to uh, intimidate. They were trying to carve out. They were trying to uh, uh, out-muscle, out-elbow. There was a lot of dirty stuff that went on. Um, One time I got a chance in private to uh, run into Ricky Mahorn. I said to Ricky, I said, I just want you to give me that look that you always gave people before you uh, laughed in their face. And the next 10 seconds seemed like a minute. (laughs) He gave it to me immediately, effortlessly, and about second six, seven, and eight, I was ready for the door. (laughs) (laughs) Then he started, he broke out laughing as as they did. But the game at the early stages, as you're you're asking me of was physical and it was more uh, more of the uh-huh. interior bigs the game changed I think with a lot of legal lawsuits over contact and injuries and liability and I think it's uh, it may well be in almost every sport and in almost every area it has um, it has been very similar to that so 
the game has gotten a lot softer. I think the rules have a lot, the rules have been relaxed in a lot of other things. So, for example, a guy can cross the ball over and take six steps, five steps. We look at it and we shake our head and say that's not basketball. But the game, when I teach it, is is if they allow it, we do it. If they don't, we don't. But you have to make sure that the people that you're working with are at the cutting edge of what's going on. And you do that by observing excellence and making sure that you can not only understand it, but you can recreate it. So this is a public service announcement right, <laughs> for, the, for the younger bigs out there since we're in the subject of bigs. The game for the bigs hasn't changed all that much. Why am I saying that? If, look, yes, you're playing with a bunch of smalls out there. But if you can't defend the post, if you don't rebound the basketball, you're going to find yourself on the bench. You still have to do your job. Yes, your job description may be expanded a little bit. You know, you may get caught out there on an island with a small because you're looking for mismatches. You know, coaches are always looking for it. But with the help defenses that they give now, all you've got to do is keep a guy in front of you for a couple of seconds. You should have the help defense. But if you're standing out there as a young big, and you've got three rebounds at the end of a game, right? And the guard that's out there has seven, then <laughs> you're not playing anyway. Okay, so I would say that the game is still um, collision friendly in the post, all right? If you look at the last three MVPs of the NBA, who were they? Yeah, they were bigs. They're 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 bigs. They're uh, you know different game than. Than but, Shaq and Pat Ewing per se, physical. but yeah. Do you see how physical Jokic? Oh is? yeah, yeah. Do you see how physical Embiid is? Yeah. Do you how, see how physical Giannis is? Yeah. You're I don't think fight. one of the Morris twins has ever been right since Jokic, you know, put <laughs> him on the put him on the hardwood, you know. Um, yeah. So there's an <laughs> attitude that you have to have in order to play in the post, and you have to do your job because that's what the coaches want, you know. And there'll always be physical play. Um. Question for both of you guys, because uh, there's been, you know, Rudy Gobert was running his mouth about this and other people have. How do you feel if you took Shaq or you took Wilt Chamberlain, you know, the all-time great physical specimens, and you mentioned seeing young Russell Young Wilt. My opinion, and this is going just off of old footage and what you read and my dad who played was of some esteem back in, in, in the day, but like... I think Wilt is the greatest physical specimen to ever play the game. If you look at didn't have the advantages of modern weight training, didn't have the advantages of modern footwear, you know, 7-1 barefoot, so that's like 7-3 today. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about him being the strongest individual he ever encountered. You know, they had to put rule changes in place where you couldn't dunk free throws because he could do it with such ease that that's how he would shoot his free throws and high, you know, but you, you take a physical freak like that or, or like Shaq, you know, Rudy Gobert was like, oh, Shaq wouldn't do anything in today's game. I feel like that's not, I feel like, yes, the rules are a little different, but you take Shaq and put him in, in, in today's game. I feel like there's nobody stopping him because of how soft everybody is and how much of a physical freak he was. What do you feel like with you take a traditional guy like a Shaq or David Robinson, even if we're going to stay sort of in the modern era, and you put them in today's game? That's, it's a question that I always wonder. I, I think that we're, we're missing the fact that those guys could move. Shaq could move. Yep. David Robinson could move. So they're still going to be moving yeah. with the same size, the same physicality, the same strength level, and probably get a couple of more calls, right? Because you were allowed to beat the hell out of them, and you know the refs wouldn't call anything, right? Yeah. 
So imagine now you can't touch him and he just walks in the post and to take whatever <laughs> position he wants. And, you know, you're, you're guarding your life at that point. You know, you can't stop Shaq. Are you kidding me? Will, I, didn't, I never saw him play, but, jeez. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Even look at Kareem. They, they say Wilt ran a 4-5-40 at, at that size, which is insane. <laughs> like a young Kareem? Yeah. Stop it. Stop it. You know, stop it. The, the bigs were magnificent. I do believe that the refs start off the first 10 games of a season sort of establishing the rules, and then the last uh, 15% of the season they start calling playoff basketball. The lion's share of the basketball that they make their name and their money in is, I think, slightly overrated and very padded because at that point they get a lot of soft calls, they get a lot of makeup calls, and so on. My own opinion is is that I, have, I would vote, if, if it was me coaching it, I don't think there was anybody close to Shaquille O'Neal. That's just my yeah. opinion. I think the things that Shaquille O'Neal would have done would have walked other teams off the court. He could have fouled out as many people as possible, and he got me, an atheistic Jew, to pray <laughs> not to murder Antonio Davis before his contract came up. That's the level of the Kyle Malones. That's the level of the Ricky Mohorns. That's the level of the Will Chamberlains. Uh, Shaq used to run with the small forwards. He ran with Donald Royal and Nick Anderson in the lines. Those were two uh, phenomenal athletes, tip-top level talents. Shaq didn't want nothing to do with the fives or fours. He laughed at them. So he came from a hard-working environment. I think if he wasn't into 50,000 women, it would have been Will Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah, I, I still uh, Shaq was 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 incredible, and and he was more my era. But I just the things you read, and then the old footage you see of like how high above the rim Wilt played. Like I said, in an era when they didn't have the kind of strength training, it was just you know I think he's the greatest natural physical specimen. Yeah, you know, as far as what his base before you start building upon it was. Mm -hmm to probably ever play the game. And I'm not saying if you took him from just straight out of his era and put him to, like, he'd be putting up the same numbers, no. But if you took his natural physical ability and brought him up in the era of strength and conditioning and all that, I think the physical freakishness would have been something. I mean, there's this video of him, old man Wilt, uh, when everything had taken its toll on him and blocking two of Kareem's skyhooks, and, mm -hmm. and that's like the impossible shot to block, and he gets up high enough to swat two of them is was incredible but um but yeah i mean it just kind of my my view on i i think that the the game has changed but i think you took a shack and put him into i think that his numbers would have been even greater because there's just no one that could kids aren't coming up now looking for contact and looking for i think for the most part i during the brief, brief period when i was doing some filming and stuff around the AAU circuit before I got totally turned off by it, um, uh, which happened almost immediately. But, um, you know, the thing that would stand out to me the most is, like, the kids that would actually rebound the ball on the offensive end. Mm -hmm. That always was the first thing that caught my eye because nobody's doing it anymore, you know? Um, I thought that if I worked with Shaquille O'Neal, he would have been a face-up player. You will never see that quote from any coach yeah. before I just said that or after. He had the speed. He understood the angles. That's why 
That's why he got where he wanted to get to win the post. The referees were extremely difficult on him because he was so dominant that they really had no choice but to be unfair in their calls to him. But uh, a 20-year-old Shaquille O'Neal and me, I don't think would have been touchable because I would have had him as a face-up player. Not because he was going to be a deep shooter. That wasn't going to be. But because I got Donald Royal to go to the foul line 390 times in 391 field goal attempts one year. Could you imagine Shaquille O'Neal, 2,150 field goal attempts yeah. and 1,900 <laughs> fouls against him? I mean, he'd have sat down half of the front court every game he played. Yeah. They'd have been playing nervous, in foul trouble, um, and, yeah, and so pe- on. People don't realize what a physical freak Shaq was. I mean, he's the, like I, I think he's the the closest thing to Wilt as far as you look at where the league that he's playing in is. And then you look at how much above it he is, you know, probably the closest thing in the modern, the real modern era to a wilt as far as being so high above everybody else from a total physical standpoint, as far as size, strength, explosive athletic ability. Like people remember old Shaq from being on the the, the generation Mm -hmm. today, from being on like the Celtics and the Suns. And, you know, Shaq, even from the Lakers days, but then when you go back to Shaq with the Orlando Magic, like he was beating the guards down the floor when they'd get on the and he was handling the ball, you know, like like three dri- people talked about mm-hmm. when Giannis took like three dribbles or something from one end to the other and it's like Sorry Shaq was doing that and dunking the ball but doing it at, you know, I think when he came into the league, they he was 7-1 like 303, you know, he was doing it somewhere in the 300 to 315 weight range. And then even when he was with the Suns and he got up, I mean, sorry, even when he was with the Lakers and he got up to like 330, he was still, you watch highlights from those championship years and like he was the man on that team. Mm-hmm. It was always Kobe was like the Robin yeah. to Shaq's Batman yeah. and the things that Shaq was still doing from an athletic standpoint. And that was back before they started allowing like, you know, what they call the gather step and other things where it's still crazy to me when you watch, I'll watch like a big man, you know, do do like a move and they like spin your stat what used to be establishing your pivot and then still moving the other and then going up into the move and it's like you go back even the early 2000s mid to that's a travel every time and now it's you know i don't know how many steps you get in the game anymore and it's not just the like on the move taking maybe an extra step but it's literally guys post move pivot what used to be establishing your your pivot foot and then moving that going up into a layup or a dunk and that stuff that oh, that an, never used to be allowed. I mean, there's an answer to that. I'm not going to give it, but there's an answer to that. But I remember talking to Ronnie Nunn, who was a, a, a longtime ref. NBA ref. And, uh, you know, you, you ask, he, he was asked a question. He said, well, you know, how, how, do you, how do you ref Shaq's games? He goes, no, Shaq can do whatever the hell he wants to do. <laughs> That's how dominant he is. He can do whatever the hell he wants to do. you got to call something. Right? I mean, do you remember when they played Philly in the championship, how he was just displacing Dikembe with every yep. dribble? <laughs> yeah, I, I remember how much he was, yeah, just, you know, and Dikembe he wasn't was... waving the fl- finger at Shaq. Yeah, he and, and Dikembe was an all-time... Shaq, I, I think people, will they'll think, oh, you know, Dikembe was garbage, and it's because the only thing they have to go on is him against Shaq. And right. it's like, Dikembe is an all-time great defensive exactly. player, but exactly. he couldn't do anything against, yeah. against Shaq. Yeah. Wayne, how has, you know, so you're obviously... 
as are all of us, older than when you started doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the game has changed a lot. And, you know, I, th- I, I don't like to be one of those back in, back in my day. You know, for the most part, I, I'm, and I'm not getting into politics, but I'm, I'm in favor of, of social progress and change and evolution as a society. And, and, you know, I'm not like, you know, we need to go back to the 50s when it's like, we couldn't be sitting here at this table, you know, doing this in most of the country, exactly. given the dynamics here. But, um, you know, I, there is a softness that, you know, you kids today, they don't play on, you drive by in the summer. It makes me sad every time you go by basketball courts. I remember when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school, like, you know, you're talking 90s, early 2000s. Everybody was playing. Even in back then, AAU was was exclusive. You had to be picked. You couldn't pay your way onto a team. You know, even the great players were still playing pickup ball with, like, grown men. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how many times I got my nose broken doing stuff like that. Um, and it, I, I do think it built a level of toughness. There wasn't social media back then, so it wasn't, you know, anyone that had a camera or friends that were good with a camera or money to throw at a videographer could be making these, you know, cinematic tapes of themselves looking like NBA superstars, you know, starring in some sort of dramatic, you know, uh, noir film and then, you know, going onto the basketball court. Like, the, 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 the branding, the hyping, none of that existed for players, but it didn't exist for trainers either. Now you see all these trainers doing all these crazy drills on social media even the good ones you know the legit ones are still they're like marketing themselves out there you know you you've you've been in the game a long time you know um the game has changed and you are not someone i think bobby would agree that is ever going to be stroking players egos that's not your style it's always been blunt it's always been here's how i see it you're not someone that's going to be self-promoting across you know channels you know how has the game, how have the changes impacted you as a trainer? And, and what do you feel about the, the changes with, with players and the softness and, and just the changes with, with, you know, I feel like a lot of NBA players are looking for trainers that are, that are going to stroke their egos and make them look good on social media and not rock the boat and know a little bit about basketball. And I'm not degrading because there are some real legit ones out there, but... There is like an ego stroking component that seems like it comes with a lot of the high level trainers, the younger new generation, and that's clearly not your style. How has has this impacted you? I would say that most of uh, what's gone on has moved in a more uh, selfish direction. Uh, the kids are always interested in looking up their videos that they post online. You'll look at a kid that put a video on and there'll be a lot of, uh, there'll be a certain amount of people that look at this video and the video will be all of uh, 30 seconds. They made one basket. But they feel that that's praiseworthy to the point where they should be hyped. Uh, When I was coaching the large groups of college people that were trying to become professionals or young professionals that were trying to move up, it was trying to help them build a life. At this stage, what I want is is for people to build a bridge to a better version of themselves that's more personal, that's deeper, as opposed to that they get better by becoming better basketball players. They are the ones that have to make that challenge. It takes too much energy 
to help them with that challenge. When they start getting better and they start feeling uh, more competent and they got the monkey off their back and they see, as Bobby put it to me one time, they see respect in people's eyes. That is meaningful. That's the way men are wired. I don't know about today, but that's how they were wired when we were playing down the hard court parks with the, with the Converse sneakers. You wanted to see uh, that that guy, when you said, I'll take him, right? And that guy looked over and saw your face. You wanted to see him uncomfortable. You wanted to see him a little bit nervous, antsy, maybe that he could tell somebody else to guard you. I said, you can tell anybody to guard me. I'm still guarding you. That was the nature of the people then. This group, they just want to hit threes. They want to be on media, hit threes. But then when they run into the brick wall that they don't make the seventh grade team, they don't make the ninth grade freshman team in high school, is every bit as meaningful as a professional. Because once that happens, they're around a society that has okayed drugs, that has okayed perversions of all sorts, and it's been um, what you want sports to represent is as an anchor, something that the kid can hold on to as they express themselves, grow, compete, and learn about themselves, life, and people. And you're not going to get that if all you're doing is me, myself, and I. You know, uh, what I'm seeing now is the parents are many, in many instances, the problem. Um, the parents are also fans of the game. Um, the parents are often um, former athletes or former wannabe athletes who live through their children. Uh, I can say that with, with my own son, it was a pleasure to help train him, but I'm so glad that I never coached him it, it allowed me to, to be dad. The kids now are so, so worried about being recognized by their peers with, I mean, by way of the, the videos and you know, the clips that they're losing out on the opportunity. They're losing out uh, on the importance of discovering who they are. Because if, if you're a schmuck on the court, most likely you're one off the court, okay? Um, they don't understand what it takes to actually succeed, all right? And the success isn't in what you're accomplishing on the court. That's just a byproduct. It's you having to fight yourself to understand that you're not that good, right? If I walked on the court with, I mean, if I walked on the court with Antonio Davis, and I said, man, nothing, nothing I'm, do, I'm doing seems to be working. He knows more. He was better, right? Didn't mean I wasn't going to compete. It was I have to find the best, the best version of myself. What does that mean? And it's a constant process. You are constantly growing. The parents don't teach the kids these lessons. They look for the coaches to do it. And the problem is that many of the coaches aren't prepared to do it because for them, it's a business, it's not a calling. Um, what I had, what I was fortunate enough to do with Wayne was I, I found someone who, who, it was Wayne's calling to do this, right? 
It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't going in on Saturday mornings or, you know. This was, no, I am going to challenge you every step of the way, and I'm going to put in the time to do it. If you want to talk, let's talk. Coaches don't have, I don't see, I'm not saying all coaches, but I'm saying the majority of trainers out there, and you're looking to, to make a living, not create, they're not looking to create a, a, a life for someone else. That's, that's what I've seen. Well, helping mm-hmm. them create their, a, better, a better life for themselves yeah. and, and so on. Wayne, how much longer do you think you'll do this? You've been doing it a long time. People, I, you know, in, in to this day and age, I don't know if anybody gets to retire and enjoy retirement anymore unless you're inherently wealthy. Um, but, but how much longer do you think you keep doing the day-to-day training kids? You know. Uh, or young men or, you know, I'm not. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be 70 years old in February. And. If I was going on age, then it's in God's hands. If I'm going on where I am as a coach, it's as long as I feel like doing it because um, I could still discern subtlety at a very high level and make that subtlety into something that I can understand, recreate, and train people. So what you're looking for is some other X factor something that will fit their game better, something that will make them more deceptive, more effective. And what, what that means to them is going to come out in the wash, how they present themselves, how they show up for work, what they eat, and how they relate with other people. But uh, years and years ago, uh, the New York Knicks had a very intelligent player out of Princeton named Bill Bradley, became uh, a senator. Bill Bradley said, a very special line when he was being asked about basketball. He said, I could tell more about any man on earth who likes basketball by how he plays the game. Does he include other people? Does he hustle? Does he uh, blame other people for bad passes or mistakes in communication or something like that? How he comports himself is extremely important. And that's not going to happen by accident. So you have a chance to teach somebody if the parents give you the room, the parents are uh, are more likely in many cases to be obstacles as opposed to propellants because they're hearing from hundreds of people. That's actually the biggest challenge in the game for all trainers. The more you make a player more successful, the more people come out of the woodwork to say, but we're next. We're the next level. And you can do it by faking pictures. You could do it by exaggerating achievements. We have people that literally create resumes. And, and, and 10, 20 years later, you find out online they never went to that college. They never played varsity for this sport. They, it's, just, it, it's, it's hilarious, and it's sad simultaneously. Uh, you know, I, I guess the last thing that I'll ask both of you guys, because we've been here for, for a long time, and I think we're going to have to probably have a part two and maybe a part three down the road of this, this conversation. Um, what advice would you guys give to the young kids that are coming up that are as athletes that are, 
you know, not saying the ones that are just like, I want to be a pro, but just at any level, the young kids that are playing the sport, the A sport, because I know you guys work with kids of, of different ability levels. What what advice would you give to to young kids that are that are getting into sports today? I'll take I'll take a quick a quick one at this. I think that the young kids the young kids today gotta understand the difference between that they wanna be good at, at this game because they have needs for respect and recognition and that's wonderful. But in the scheme of things, basketball at best is a vehicle. And that vehicle should be to find yourself, to find good relationships and actually have the strength to let go of bad ones. I'm gonna say this as nicely as possible. They need to shut the hell up and listen. Their, their, their feelings, um, while they will be considered, will never be the driving, should never be the driving force behind their decisions. I think that they have plenty of adults out there who are trying to help them and sometimes the message may come across a little harsh to them. Um, I, I would ask them to, to, to slow down a little bit and uh, don't, don't kill the messenger. Listen, listen to the message. It'll, it'll allow them to learn. One other caveat, I guess I'll put this as an addendum to that question, um, because I think we often talk about what advice would you give to kids, but we know that parents, parental figures, uh, play a large role in the upbringing, in the athletic careers of their kids. Um, you see a lot parents that are trying to live vicariously through their kids, or even if they're not, and they have the best of intentions that they are really trying to steer the ship and 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 push the gas pedals from the from the passenger seat. Uh, Bobby, I'll remember a piece of advice that, or something that you said offhand to me um, when you were working under Wayne, when you were understudying and you were starting to, to work with him. And it's something that I've always taken with me. You know, I try to use it with my own kids who aren't really sports yet. But um, but I think about it when I, I would think about it back when I was coaching. As you said, you can't want it more than they do. And I think about that with my own dad. Um, who uh, was the biggest figure in my own athletic career, and, and unfortunately, his 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 um, his death. You know, when I was a teenager, really, not immediately, but it derailed my career from the heights that it that it could have reached on raw ability and and the the drive that I had when he was alive. Because his sports were just never the same. I never enjoyed them the same. I wasn't present in them the, the way that I was anymore. But he introduced me. And let it be known, hey, like, you know, he was 6'8", six, 6'7", six, I'm 5'9", on a really good day. Like, you know, he was very real. Like, you know, there are people a lot bigger than you that are doing this. And you got you to gotta work harder than them if this is what you want. And I'll take you and I'll work you out and I'll do everything you want and I'll drive to the games and if you want it. But he left it up to me after he introduced me to it, to, to be that. And I think, I always think about he didn't directly say you can't want it more than they do, but that's how he lived it with me. And Bobby, that was something you said to me was you can't want it more than they do. And you were talking about the players that you train that you can't. You realize you can't want it more than those kids do. Um, yeah. But what advice would you guys give to the parents and the parental figures? Because I always take away that like you can't want it more than they do. But but what did, I don't want to put words into your guys' mouths. I'll take it. I think that if um, if the parents are going to get it right, they're going to realize the limitations of being a parent. 
You can't live the life of the child. The child is genetically half of you at most, all right? And the, they could come up with a million different possible versions of that same person. Support them, give them, give them the, the kind of warmth and respect of their energy and their challenge. But the parents got to lighten up about the significance or not of the significance. You've brought a resource into the situation, a high-level coach. My recommendation would be is if the child is doing well, don't make any moves. Continue the process. So what I've, what I've found out is um, Wayne once said to me that I can't help you without your permission that uh, that was a God smack, okay? Because every, everything that I understood about that was right then and there. At that moment, I said, wow. Parents have to learn how to, you know, it's hard because, you know, we look for answers, but our answers aren't always next door to us. I mean, I found that out personally. My, my answers did not, were not coming from the people that were closest to me. They came from people in the form of Wayne who I met through a sport, but through that sport, um, I was able to find out more about myself, and I think that's what the parents really want. They want their children to feel great about themselves. That's what they really want. That I don't think they care about the sport that much, because if the kid couldn't play anymore, I don't think the parent would care. You know, well, what's next? Um, it's hard to relay that message to your child. The parents get so involved. I mean, I've had to bark at parents before to, to step back, you know. <laughs> and I don't like doing that, but sometimes I have to just to give the kid a chance to grow. And uh, you know, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough because you want the respect. The parents don't do business with you because they, they like you. They do business with you because they trust you. And they've got to learn how to, to, to trust a little bit better that they don't have all the answers. Well, thank you guys uh, for a great conversation. Uh, Bobby, it's good to be back here finally with you after yes, a very, very long hiatus. Uh, Wayne, this is long, long, long overdue. Thank you for joining us. Um, My pleasure. And uh, so episode 17 in the books, we're, we're back. We're back in the, the new studio, the new equipment. And, uh, you know, we're going to get this thing rolling again. So thank you, guys. Thank you. All right. <laughs>